This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today we are joined by Dr. Tom Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner is the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation and Professor of Biblical Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the author of many books, including but not limited to The Law and Its Fulfillment, A Pauline Theology of Law, Interpreting the Pauline Epistles, Paul, an Apostle of God's Glory in Christ, a Pauline Theology, and the Baker Exegetical Commentary on Romans, which I have to say, I told him off air, is my favorite modern commentary on the book of Romans, oh, and yeah. one that I would highly encourage you to pick up. Dr. Schreiner, thank you for making time to be with us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Well, we are really excited to have you on because we're discussing Romans this season, and today's chapter, for many folks, I feel like is one of the more confusing, troubling, tricky Uh, chapters in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And so normally we read the whole of the text, but since we're discussing a chapter today, I'm just going to read Romans 7, 21 through 25, and then we can jump into the conversation. So Romans 7, beginning in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So as we enter Romans 7, Dr. Schreiner, could you maybe help us kind of recap and review where is Paul in his kind of line of argumentation through the letter to the church in Rome? When we get to Romans 7, it's obviously embedded in a context. It's halfway through this letter about what's been going on. Why is Paul saying this now in Romans 7? Yeah, well, I would say if, if you look at chapters 5 through 8 as a whole, what, what is the theme of those chapters? I think the theme is, is hope. We, we see in chapters 1 through 4, we're justified by faith. Because we're justified by faith, we have hope. And then, then I think I think Paul's especially in dialogue with Jews, uh, Jewish Christians, some, but also Jewish unbelievers. And for the Jews, the the solution to the problem of who we are as human beings, that is sin. The solution is the law. The solution is the Torah. You know, they had a, they had a saying, the, 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 the more law, you know, the more life. And, and Romans 5, 20, Paul says just the opposite, right? The right. law came in to, to multiply uh, sin. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is one of the most shocking things he ever said. So really in Romans 7, he picks up that notion again. How, what is the relationship between law and sin? Why is it that law isn't a solution, but, but part of the problem? So maybe as Christians, we've read this many times, we don't find this as shocking, but for, for any person nurtured in the Old Testament and in Judaism in Paul's day, mm-hmm. what he s- says here would be absolutely shocking. So he yeah. has to explain it. And I think that's what Romans 7 does. He explains why, why the laws ends up being part of the problem. Right, hmm. right. So now in uh, we read 21 through 25, which is the end of this chapter. But at the beginning, Paul starts out in a way that I have to admit feels a little jarring for me. It feels 
it's almost like he's a he's like he starts with the illustration, but his opening illustration feels kind of harsh. I mean, he says, "Do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives." Then he moves to talking about marriage. For a married woman is bound by laws to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Does is Paul is there a reason why Paul does this here? Is there a reason why he uses the illustration of marriage, or is he just appealing to a kind of a, a law they would be very intimately familiar with? I, I guess I, it feels a little confusing for me. It feels out of whack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think a lot of people have been surprised by the use of the illustration because in the illustration, it's the husband who dies and then when Paul applies it, as you pointed out, it's the, you die, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of jarring. Why he refers to marriage, I, perhaps it's because at the end of the day, I think we're, we're united to Christ, right? As believers and as a, a married couple produce fruit, children, Christians produce fruit. Perhaps that's why he introduces marriage. I think it's hard to be sure why he selected that illustration. I would say in any case, right, whatever he picked marriage, and there is some awkwardness to it, the the focus, the focus in the chapter is on the law, not on mm-hmm. marriage, sure, but but on the law. Yeah. And that's where he's taking us, right? Because in verses four through six, you know, we have died to the law through the body of Christ. And then he goes on and he said in verse six, but we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what is this dynamic between law and spirit that he's getting at? So uh, you're no longer bound to serve uh, the law, right? You're now bound to serve in the way of the spirit, not in the old way. So what is the difference between the old way and the new way? What's the difference between the old way of the written code and the new way of the spirit? Well, I, the first thing I would say is I think Paul is uh, speaking redemptive historically, covenantally. Yep. There's, there's a contrast between the two covenants. The, the, the law is associated with the covenant with Moses. And I think Paul is saying we're not under that covenant, you're under the new covenant. And of course, if you read Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, in the new covenant, you're promised the spirit. So I think that is the, perhaps the major theme in this chapter is those who are under the law are under the power and authority of sin. But in, but in the new covenant, in the power of the spirit, Christians live new lives. Because that's what he's all about in this chapter. I think the Jews, you you think back to chapter 6, I think his Jewish opponents were saying to Paul, well, your gospel is very nice. That's a, that's a great gospel. But here's the problem with it. It actually leads people to sin more. Because mm-hmm. you say, the more we sin, the more God gives us grace. So that means we sin more. And, they, and I think their response is, that's no gospel. That, that, is, no, that is not good news. If, you're, if your message... in encourages people to sin more. And I think Paul flips it on them and says, no, it's actually those who are under the law who sin more. 
That's right. Those are under the law, under the power of sin. But we've got, we've been crucified with Christ. We've died with Christ. We're, we're, we're new creatures in Christ. We have the Spirit. We bear fruit for God. We mm -hmm. live new lives. I don't think he's talking about perfection. But, but I think Paul's counter to the Jews isn't, well, that's right. That's my gospel. My, my gospel <laughs> says, sin, 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 grace, right. grace, grace. Mm -hmm. I think Paul's response is, no. My gospel changes people. The law can't do that. Mm -hmm. Can I just say something pastorally here? Yeah, you know, absolutely. When, when we're raising our, I'm, I'm, or maybe parentally, when we're raising our kids as they're becoming teenagers, you know, we, we had to say to ourselves, look, they know the law. They, <laughs> that, they know the right thing to do. But that's not going to change them. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's going to finally change them is the Spirit of God who mm -hmm. regenerates them. Mm -hmm. And it's very tempting as a parent, maybe as in ministry too, it's very tempting to say the way we're going to change people is through rules and regulations. And, and I'm not saying we don't need any rules or regulations, even as parents, but I think that's Paul's argument. Paul's argument is, look, R rules and regulations, they, th that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. He tells us that, doesn't he? What he's doing here in uh, Dr. Schreiner in chapter 7 reminds me a lot of what he's doing and what he did in chapter 2. Now, we've already covered this in the podcast, but it's where uh, I'm preaching through Romans with my church right now. So I'm just seeing some connections here because you, you just mentioned like, uh, you know, it's it's you basically just said it's God's kindness that leads mm -hmm. to repentance. It's not this, this rule and regulation that leads to a new heart. And then at the end of the ch of chapter two, he starts leading into what he means by this spirit filled life where he says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew or one who is God's is one inwardly. It's a matter of circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter. Do you, I mean, of course, this is Paul's theology, so there's connections everywhere, but it seems like there's some explicit connections there that he's making as what it, this hope that we now have, chapter six, five, six, now leading into seven, is ultimately that we would be regenerated, circumcised by the, in the heart through the work of the Holy Spirit, not by law keeping. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And in fact, we have the same, uh, letter-spirit contrast that you find in Romans 2, 28, 29, and you find it in Romans uh, 7, exactly. 5, and 6. Mm -hmm. And the only other place we see it is 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Paul contrasts the letter and the spirit, and again, he's talking about the law. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what does he say there? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a consistent theme. Hey, what, one question I have for you, uh, Dr. Schreiner, is, and we've had like, we had Michael Kruger on to talk about Romans chapter three. I know you're friends with Dr. Kruger. We've, we have some other guests that are joining us. We actually have your colleague from Southern, Dr. Williams, joining us here in a little bit to, to help us out with some things. One question that I'm interested in asking is, this is a big question in New Testament scholarship, is what does Paul mean by namas or law? When we get here in, into Romans chapter mm -hmm. 7, what exactly, if we are contrasting letter or law and spirit, mm -hmm. what does he mean that, like, what law have we been released from? Is it just generally Mosaic covenant? Is he, does he have something in mind more specific? What, what's your take? I, I think the vast majority of interpreters, and I agree with this, would say it is the Mosaic law. Mm -hmm. That's what he has in mind. The covenant given with Moses and that particular law. 
Now, I, I do want to say, you know, the, the, the verses Kyle read at the beginning, there's a big debate over whether he starts playing with that word and starts using it in terms of principle and rule. And, but in the first six verses, I think he's talking about the Mosaic Law. I okay. think that. And, and in verses 7 through 12, really most of the chapter Mosaic uh, and that, that's that's the majority. Yeah, the, the the law, this law associated with the covenant given to Moses, the law given at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. Okay, that that that's the majority view, and I think that's correct. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Now, when he, when he turns in verse 7, Dr. Schreiner, and he says, that the, uh, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, I was actually talking about this with a member at our church. We're teaching through Romans right now. And they go, well, hold on. Are you telling me that before the law there wasn't sin? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are other passages in Romans that kind of, uh, you know, where, where Paul will talk about, hey, uh, where, you know, where the law came and it increased the trespass or sin isn't counted where there is no law. Yeah, These kind of passages, yeah, and they can be confusing for people because they're going, what do you mean sin wasn't counted? Uh, uh, there's a lot of time that happens between the garden and uh, the giving of the law. What was going on with all those people? Could you just maybe speak to that confusion when it's like, it's not saying that nobody coveted between Genesis 3 and Sinai, It's what, but what is it saying? Wait, wait, wait. Before he goes, I want to test out a theory, and then Dr. Schreiner, you can humiliate me in real time on the podcast <laughs> if I get it wrong, okay? Please, please do this. Please. <laughs> please. Like, <laughs> even if you agree with season. her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was really trying to think through. It, we're, we're teaching it in the Bible study. You can see how JT and Kyle and I decide what to do on the podcast. It's basically how can we repurpose our time from somewhere else. And so we, we just actually concluded chapter six in our teaching. And one of the things we were pointing back to was that statement in 513 about sin was not counted before the law. And it, this whole idea of like, wait a minute, what is, what is even being said there? And so here's the analogy that I came up with. And it's, it's also humiliating even if it's even if it's right, it's still humiliating because it's personal uh, and embarrassing. So um, we had our carpets cleaned um, a few months back and I had the, the, the cleaning crew come in and I said, you know, they're not that bad. 
We do have, you know, some pets, but nothing terrible has happened. I do occasionally spill my coffee, but it's going to be okay. And they were like, cool, cool. And then they pulled out a blue light and they walked around my whole carpeted area and it became clear that I had underestimated just the amount of infractions that we had committed against the carpet. <laughs> so, and it was embarrassing. And I knew that, what I, you know, I had a sense that we were dirty people, but then I knew in a way that I had not previously known that we were in fact filthy, filthy, filthy people. And so my question is, is that an analogy that fits? with what Paul is saying, or did I, in fact, teach heresy to a room full of women two nights ago? That the blue light would be the way that the law functions in, in our, in, when, when the law is given at Sinai, we understand like we did not before the extent of our sin. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, that may be an embarrassing illustration, but I think that is right. Yeah, I agree. Oh, I he agree. agrees, guys? So, so you're only you're only you're only half embarrassed, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I think because Paul does say so. I mean that verse, Romans five thirteen. That's really hard, right? Paul says some really difficult things, but you guys have already looked at Romans two twelve. All those who sin without mm. the law will perish without the law. So. Obviously, he doesn't mean in Romans 5.13 that those who sin without the law aren't responsible, mm -hmm. right? Because all who sin without the law will perish without the law. That word for perish is the word for eternal destruction, mm -hmm. right? So obviously, they're being judged. And then, and then you can, we automatically think, what does the Bible say? Well, we think of the flood generation. They perished right. without the law. Obviously, they were mm -hmm. held responsible. So I think, it, I think it's right to say there's a sense in which, technically speaking, the law, the law, I mean, I think you could say two things. There's a sense in which a transgression of a specifically revealed law, and I think this is Paul's point in Romans 5 and Romans 7, you're, you're still responsible the other way. You know the law in your heart, so to speak, but the but the transgression of a specifically revealed law, there's a greater weight to it. And I think the second thing is the, the law, yeah, the law exposes our sin. Maybe three things. The law exposes our sin. And then the third thing is the law provokes sin. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. I, so, you know, personal illustration, I, I was in first grade. I was, I was raised as a Catholic. I was in a Catholic school. They had, a, they had a rule in first grade, don't step on the grass. And I remember as a little boy thinking, <laughs> I want to step on the grass. Mm -hmm. You know? I didn't care about stepping on the grass until I heard the command. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Paul has in mind. There's a sense in which, because we're rebellious, unregenerate, there's a sense in which the law provokes us. It provokes us, I think Paul is saying in Romans 7, to want to transgress it. So this is a this is an important point that I th I think even pastorally you could help us think through that in in one sense and I know what you mean by that but it can make the law sound bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a tyrant. Like the law provokes sin and what you mean is it provokes what's in us, right? Yeah. It's not that the law is doing something to us, but it's it's like putting its finger on what already exists in our broken state. Can you explain that a little bit for us? Well, I mean, the, the verb Paul uses is, uh, you know, the, the law, in a sense, energizes sin. 
But the illustration I like mm -hmm. to use is the law, the law is something good, but the law is pulled into the orbit. If you think of sin as the sun, and, and, and sin pulls law into its orbit, and it uses something good, because the law is good, and mm -hmm. Paul strains to say that, it uses something good to actually destroy us. So I think Paul's being very nuanced here. At the, on the one hand, he's saying, yes, the law is good. It's the revealed will of God. It's what we're supposed to do. But on the other hand, it, for the unregenerate people, it pulled into sin's orbit, and it actually becomes an agent, or at least a secondary agent, of our destruction. So then Paul can say in Romans 8, you're going to come to Romans 8 next week or whatever when you do that, uh, right? But, mm -hmm. but for those who have the Spirit, the ordinance of the law is fulfilled in us, who do mm -hmm. not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And, or in Romans 13, he says, through love we fulfill the law. Mm -hmm. yep. So he doesn't only say negative things about the law. Right. Sure, and even out of the immediate verses that we're going to in verse 13, he kind of anticipates that question, right, JT? Did exactly. that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Like he's, he's like heading it off of the past. It was mm -hmm. sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So it's like, the, is it safe to say, I'm testing this with you like Jin just tested this with you, Dr. Schreiner, <laughs> and this is also something I have said in a recent sermon, so I might have to, you know, uh, sackcloth and ashes if this is wrong. But, but is it embarrassing? It, I want it to be also embarrassing. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. No, I don't think I'm going to be able to one-up you on that okay. one. Okay, sis. Well, I have stories um, on you if I need them. It's true. Um, but like, uh, is Paul saying, listen, the law... Can the law serve as a tutor in Paul's imagination? Like a tutor into the ways, the good ways of God, but under sin, it's merely a tyrant? Like is that, like when we come, when we do experience regeneration by the Spirit, can we then look back at what was a tyrant to us, the law, not because of how the law is, but because of our, our bent against the law, can it now become a tutor to us? a demonstration of the righteousness and the ways and the character of God? Or would that be to have Paul saying too much? No, yeah, I think, I think that's correct. Yeah, the law, I mean, I think the law has a number of functions, right? It's, uh, you know, the reformers talked about the prophetic function of the law. It points us to Christ. And then they talked about the convicting function of the law. It convicts or exposes our sin. And then, you know, Calvin famously, but it's actually in Lutheran theology too, there's a third use of the law as a rule of life. And I think those categories are, are helpful and good, uh, all three of them. So there is a sense in which the law exposes who we are, mm -hmm. uh, if that's what you mean by a tutor. Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what's interesting to me? I'm noticing this for the first time. Um, linguistically, so you know how we inherit so much of our phraseology from the Bible, you know, phrases that are commonly used, like um, things like uh, in, at the 11th hour, you know, that's something that comes from the Bible, but we don't always think about that. And I'm wondering if when we think about the way that people talk about obeying the letter of the law or the spirit of the law, like I'm, I'm just now connecting that it's probably coming from here because we have this tension between letter and spirit, but it's capital S spirit. And it just hadn't really occurred to me that when we speak of uh, obeying the spirit of the law, you can only do it by the capital S spirit uh, in order to fulfill all righteousness. If you're going to be holy as he is holy, then it has to be a spirit-led fulfilling of the law. But I don't, I'm wondering if that even shaped the English language 
Because Christians say that, right? I mean, non-Christians will say you should obey the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, right? That's not just a Christian-y thing, is it? No, I don't think so. I think unbelievers do say that as well. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it's been driven by this language. Yeah. No I, idea. I don't know. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, Dr. Schreiner, um, when we get to verse 14, we enter into what <laughs> I feel like is a you pretty big You have to solve our problems. Que- <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is a pretty big question. I actually got to tell you, well, I'm sorry, JT, are you muted right now? You are. Look I didn't realize that. I was. Hey, look it's at me. It's my favorite version hey. of JT where his lips are moving and I can't hear what he's saying. <laughs> I, actually, I actually think, I think Kyle somehow has like proxy powers because I did not mute myself there. I think Kyle <laughs> somehow the did spirit. this. Okay. It was the spirit. Uh, I was just going to say verse 15 is my life verse. <laughs> for I do not understand my own actions. <laughs> I do not, for I do not understand my own actions. That's on my, it's on yep. my car. I've got that on my bumper sticker. Yeah, and, and if it's not your life verse, it's the thing that Macy knows is true oh, about you. Oh, there is you. no doubt about that. Well, Dr. Schreiner, I, I got to tell you, uh, years ago, uh, maybe the audience doesn't know this, we actually brought Dr. Schreiner in for a, a Roman seminar at the church where we were, we were all working at the time. And... Uh, uh, we many people had heard this passage coming up in a different interpretive light than Dr. Schreiner taught on it, and I remember minds being absolutely blown by this reality. Now, uh, and I don't remember what I said. That's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite parts of that whole seminar was like a lot of our. Like we have Jonathan Pennington. We have a lot of your colleagues come in, Dr. Schreiner, and they all do a great job for us. And. Uh, but you, like a lot of them have like slides and PowerPoint presentations. All you did is you <laughs> set up your computer with the Greek text and put that up on the screen with the English uh, translation next to it. And you just taught through the Greek text. And most people's minds were just like exploding yeah. from that alone. And then you would say things like, well, then Cranfield on page 369 footnote 17 says, and it was just like this tour de force of Romans. It was one of the I best I just sat teaching. quietly sobbing in the corner. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was so, so, so good. Well, and when we get to this passage, I got to say, this is a part that feels troubling for people because, uh, you know, I'll just read a portion of it just to kind of get the juices going here for the listener. Uh, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Mm -hmm. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So many times, Dr. Schreiner, when people begin to read this, they begin to ask themselves this question, who is narrating this? Is this pre-salvation Paul? Is this Paul talking about life prior to the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and salvation? Is this post-salvation Paul giving a detailed analysis of what life uh, with a sin nature looks like? And and many of the world's, like growing up, when I heard this preached, it was, this is the believer's struggle with sin. Mm -hmm. This is a Christian's struggle with the indwelling sin nature. Um, but, But after hearing you teach on it, I wasn't so sure that that was accurate. And maybe our listeners would be challenged to hear some of your thoughts on this passage. So who who is talking here? What voice is Paul talking in? What situation is he speaking from? Yeah. <laughs> well, I laugh because I've had a Romans 7 experience with Romans 7, right? <laughs> I, I've... I've ch- 
I've really struggled with this passage over the years. I've changed my mind more than once over the subject. Uh, honestly, I think great arguments could be given for both the pre-Christian and post-Christian view. So, I mean, probably a lot of your listeners, or, or maybe it, this probably reflects the world I'm in, but maybe a lot of your listeners have heard of Doug Moo, and he, mm -hmm. makes, a, he makes a great argument for being post-Christian. Uh, I mean, pre-Christian, and only pre-Christian. So, you know, the, why would people think it's only pre-Christian? Because he says in 7.14, he talks about being sold mm -hmm. under sin, mm -hmm. or in 7.23, being a, a captive to sin. Mm -hmm. and, and so people say, how does that fit with Romans 6, that you're free from sin, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Or right. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Mm -hmm. But then he says in Romans 7, I'm a captive to sin. I'm a, I'm a slave to sin. Uh, and so he never mentions the Holy Spirit in verses 14 through 25. That's another argument. So mm -hmm. the uh, very good arguments can be given for it being uh, pre-Christian, but also post-Christian, right? You know, verse... Uh, 23, I delight in the law of God in the inner person. Even that very struggle, do unbelievers have a struggle like that? So right. wanting to keep God's law. So, you know, we could go back and forth on this. I'll just tell you where I am right now. I, what I argued in my commentary is I said, look, the, the, the focus of the chapter isn't, isn't, on whether it's pre or post Christian, it's on the law. Mm -hmm. The focus is on the law. And I think Paul's point is in these verses the law can't transform you mm -hmm. because he looks at the human capacity, mm -hmm. he looks at who we are as human beings. So, and this sort of fits my personality, so maybe it's wrong. So now I try to say it's both. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say that. Yeah. So it's true, it's true of unbelievers because they're totally in the flesh, but, it's, but believers experience this as well because we're not, totally, we're not totally transformed yet. I mean, we are, in a sense we are, but in a sense we aren't, right? We're waiting for the day of redemption. Mm -hmm. so, so yes, ex this is part of the experience of believers. It's totally the experience of unbelievers insofar as they try to obey. They can't do it. But it's still... It's still part of our experience as well. I like what you just said there. That totally the experience of unbelievers, partially like a, a picture of a part of our experience as believers. That is a good way of capturing the tension that you're trying to get us to live in here. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think it's it's pointing, you know, if you point back to verse 12 of chapter 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You know, he's acknowledging that on this side of salvation, we're still uh, waging war with sin. And so it's, you you were dead to sin. Keep dying to sin daily. You know, like it's progressive sanctification. And so I, I was hoping you were gonna say both. I was also hoping that before you told us your answer, we could all out ourselves on where we were on this. And now I'm really wishing we had done that because I would have won. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, you know, it's, it is fascinating because I think this is one of those passages. Um, and I bet as a, I bet as a, I bet as a scholar, which is sometimes, and I know that you've also served and, uh, as a pastor. So you've, you've preached passages like this before. I think that sometimes this is, this is one of those passages where maybe the preaching ministry of the church sometimes 
reduces down some of the complexities? I mean, just because it's hard to get up there and uh, and be like, okay, here are all the technical options for you and all the the key players. Um, but I feel like this is one of those times where maybe the preaching ministry, if it's gone, if you've heard this preached kind of confidently one way or the other, it can kind of become the paradigm with which you read the passage. But once you get into the passage, you're like, well, it's not as, it's not as clear as maybe the three point outline and application and poem <laughs> made it seem like, you know, it's, it's a little bit more complicated. And if you mind that, well, that can be intimidating to a listener. Maybe a listener's hearing that and going, what are you telling me? It's not just crystal clear. It's like, well, no. But even in the midst of that wrestle, you come to a deeper appreciation of what Paul's doing here, what the real uh, object of the argument is, uh, what he really wants us to say. You develop your ability to be a sophisticated reader of God's word. That, those are all benefits to the deep dive and where it, with it not being clear, right? Yeah, yeah, that struggle is good. I'll tell you a little story that uh, you might enjoy. When, when I was in Minnesota and we were, uh, John Piper was our pastor, we, he had a little something in his backyard and I was working on Romans and <laughs> I told him, you know, wrestling through the passage, I said, John, I think it's pre-Christian. And all he said to me, he just quoted to me Romans 7, 23 in his very dramatic John Piper way. <laughs> Tom, I delight in the law of God in the inner man. You know? so, but, but even when he said that, you know, I, it's like, yeah, that's, that's so, it's so hard. You know, when mm -hmm. I hear that, I'm saying, oh, yeah, maybe my view is too simple. Mm -hmm. And uh, e even wrestling through the passage is, is helpful. Another thing I just want to say, I mean, I've worked now, I've been in Christian circles for such a long time, and I think pastorally seeing it as Christian is helpful. You know, we're all, we're all flawed. Mm -hmm. we're, all, we're all broken. We're all, we all have a ways to go. I don't, I don't think we should come out of this passage defeatist. I think Paul's fundamentally optimistic. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, a lot of people think, oh, when they meet famous Christians, they have certain expectations of them, right? Mm. This is my experience. Uh, with, uh, and, and, you know, nobody meets those expectations because we're all, we're all sinners ourselves. And every institution, every church, and we know that in our own hearts, right? Mm -hmm. We know we're flawed and we're broken and we, we have a long way to go. So... I, I want to avoid a defeatism. I like what Francis Schaeffer says. There's significant, substantial, and observable victory in our lives. Mm -hmm. but, there's, but there's blind spots in all of our lives. Mm -hmm. and, and I see it in all the institutions I've worked in, everybody I work with, and then most profoundly in myself. <laughs> you know, when I hear the back and forth about whether it's um, pre-Christian or post-Christian, I was thinking about a conversation I had with uh, my Presbyterian friend, actually, Melissa Kruger, Mike's wife. And um, we were talking about something related to parenting and the 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 dis differences between Baptists and Presbyterians were becoming apparent in, in this conversation. I was saying that so often in Baptist circles, parents are concerned with whether they're addressing an unbelieving child or a believing child in the way that they're parenting. And she made the statement, you know, the message of repent and believe is good either way. And so uh, I was like, wow, that that just cleared up the whole thing in one simple phrase. And and when I hear, you know, the the dialogue around whether Paul is doing one thing or the other, and you say 
it's both. I think about that because I think about how this letter was read aloud to a group of listeners who would have been able to take something away from it without parsing the language. And I'm not, I'm not advocating for an overly simplistic understanding of what's going on, but I do think that whoever heard it, whether they were Christian or non-Christian, and um, we would assume, you know, that it was for the, that it was a believing audience, but whether there were believers or unbelievers receiving the message, that no one escapes the message the way that Paul has written it. Everyone can find themselves in it. And the message of repent and belief is for all of us. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. I was reading a commentary on this recently from an early church uh, interpreter, and he actually appeals to kind of uh, the hermeneutic of love, which interpretation leads to the greatest love of God and the greatest love of neighbor. That's and I really good. think that this this uh, idea of it's, it's a both-and thing does lead to a greater love of yeah. God and a greater love of neighbor, both neighbors who are non-Christians and neighbors who are Christians and mm. dealing with people as they are and pointing them to God's love for them, which means they can have their their broken hearts circumcised through the power of the Holy Spirit, mm. which is where Paul leads. Thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. You're, you're right, Dr. Schreiner. He does leave us with hope. This is not a pessimistic, defeatist perspective of the Christian life, but Christ is leading us into this greater and greater love of God and neighbor. Yeah, and he, you know, he says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He doesn't say, I don't know. <laughs> uh, hopefully, ho- hopefully someone. You know? that, would, that would be some bad news. Could you imagine? <laughs> oh gosh. And, yeah, and, but also in that sentence, there is a, there's, there is an all, there is a not yet, right? Because mm-hmm. our bodies are still dying, mm-hmm. yeah. right? We're not delivered yet from the body mm-hmm. of this death. There's a sense in which we're delivered and we're not. As Christians, there, there is that. We, we have eternal life now, and yet, yet we still die. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. Dr. Schreiner, good. thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really grateful for your writing ministry and your teaching ministry mm-hmm. as a graduate of Southern, and then as somebody who's still profiting from your work at a distance. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was great to be with you. It was a really fun discussion. Well, in our next episode, we're going to dive into the glories of Romans chapter 8. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace.